I do think that we shouldn't be too quick to judge people on their dating apps, like you said, but there are some really clear Mm -hmm. red flags that things are just off about a person. If their bio is just a couple of emojis or hashtags (laughs) or like a witty one-liner, like you said earlier, not here for a long time, here for a good time. (laughs) Yeah, run. If I see any type of negativity in a profile, like if you're going to message me, you better plan on answering. Yes, I'm like, whoa, this is the energy you're bringing off the bat. Hi, Heartbreakers. So today's episode is really fascinating and dives quite a bit into the psychology around dating, more so than we have in some previous episodes. And I'm interviewing Marla Goldstein. She is a dating coach who really focuses in on helping her clients date people who are emotionally available. So that transitioned pretty naturally into attachment theory because whether or not you're emotionally available can oftentimes be directly tied to your attachment style. For those of you who aren't as familiar with attachment theory or aren't familiar at all, Marla provides a fantastic definition. She goes into the psychological studies that were conducted in order to formulate this theory and just the history behind it. And then she also clearly defines what each attachment style is. So I will let her give that very expert definition that she provided. But to give some context for the purposes of this intro, attachment theory and attachment styles really inform how you relate in an intimate setting. So they're often used to kind of describe how you'll behave when you're in a romantic partnership. And there are three main attachment styles. You can be securely attached, you can be anxiously attached, you can be avoidant, And then there is a small subset of people who are a mix of anxious and avoidant. So as we were kind of talking through these, I was like, huh, I wonder what my attachment style is. And it's kind of crazy to think that I don't just know this off the top of my head. I talk about dating every single week and I've taken the quiz in the past. In fact, I'm pretty sure I like made Michael take it almost a year ago when we started dating again and we took it together on a road trip. But I don't really remember what the balance of my attachment style was. And as Marla brings up in the episode, that can shift over time. And your partner can bring out different levels of different attachment styles within you, for better or for worse. So I was like, you know what? I should take this quiz. And another reason why I thought it would be really beneficial is because as Marla was describing the avoidant attachment style, it kind of resonated with me a little bit more than I wanted it to. And two of the traits that she brought up as being indicative of an avoidant attachment style were really valuing independence. That is definitely me. I feel like I'm a very independent person, very sociable, and I really value having deep connections with other people. But I also do pride myself on the ability to really have that time to myself. And like, if there's something that I want to do and I can't find someone to do it with, I'm not going to let that stop me. Like, I think that that's a strength that I have. So I was like, hmm, okay, like, hopefully that's not actually a sign of me being avoidant. 
And then she also said that people with avoidant attachment styles see vulnerability and see opening up as a weakness at times. And I don't fully resonate with that because it's not like I look at people who are being vulnerable themselves and say, wow, that person is being weak or I can't believe they're doing this. It's more so that I myself take more time maybe than the average person to kind of open up in that vulnerable way. And that doesn't have anything to do with my ability to connect with people. It's more about the depth of that connection because I like to wait until I truly feel like I can trust somebody. So I was like, fuck, like I might be avoidant. I need to take this quiz stat to figure it out. And I will link to the specific quiz that I took in the show notes. It was a quiz via NPR. So I was like, this seems like a legit source. And I am so excited to report that I was, well, okay, this is not, this doesn't sound great, but it ends up great. So it's 38% anxious, 25% avoidant. So that was my lowest score, which was a relief. But I was 100% secure. And that sounds weird. Obviously, that's like what, 163%. But I don't exactly know how the scoring works. I think what it means is that it's so hard to explain that I answered all of the questions that are associated with a secure attachment style in a way that confirms I have a secure attachment style, but that anxious and avoidant behaviors also crept in through my responses, but thankfully at a much less significant level. So if you're curious, I mean, I would start out by listening to the podcast just to hear a more in-depth explanation of what these attachment styles really mean, how they manifest themselves. And as a bonus, we also diagnose the characters of Love is Blind to determine what we think their attachment styles are. And then you can take the quiz for yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We are here with another amazing guest for Interstates and Heartbreak today. I have Marla Goldstein. She is a dating coach who focuses on teaching you how to find emotionally available people. And she really focuses on helping single women date people who meet their boundaries, their standards, and their non-negotiables. And I have to call out that she is also a self-described dating enchantress. Welcome, Marla. Hi, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, I am really excited to talk about this because I feel like this is a common concern and frustration in dating, but a lot of people don't even know that it's a common thing that they're butting up against and like can't necessarily articulate why they're having issues with dating. So I think it'll be a really enlightening discussion. Yeah, yeah. The realm of emotional availability is really only something that I've been diving into over the last few years. And there's just so many layers to it. So it makes sense that it's not at the top of our list of what we're preparing for when we enter into the dating world. Yeah, we are not equipped properly, but that's what you're here for. Yes. And I have to dive in to ask you. So first of all, would love to, of course, plug your business, dive into your business model. But I also have to ask about the name. And I love hearing about the backstory of why people chose names for their brands and businesses, etc. And so you call your business G-Spot Coaching. And admittedly, when I saw a DM from you on Instagram, and then it was like, oh, and there's an eggplant emoji. I was expecting a very different DM than what I received. So I'd love to hear about how you came up with the name. Wow. How did I come up with the name? I'll be completely honest with you, Leslie. This whole thing was, it started about two years ago, right before the pandemic happened, where I was just thinking about 
like what it would look like if I was able to offer individual services to folks to talk about dating and relationships. Because at the time that I thought about creating this business, I was working at a domestic violence agency in my, my local county. So relationships had always been on my mind. And my partner at the time and I were just kind of spitballing names back and forth. And <laughs> we were having a lot of fun with it and being really goofy with it. And I can't remember which one of us said G-Spot coaching. <laughs> but that name, for some reason, then became the name standard that every other idea was held up against. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's kind of playing on the G from my last name in Goldstein. But yes, I really just felt this like really humorous, funny connection with the name of it. And two years later, I think about... Mm -hmm. The fact that I chose that as the name <laughs> of this business. <laughs> and it really is a testament to how I truly, really, I didn't care what this looked like at the time. I just knew that I wanted to create something. And I always had in the back of my mind, if I don't like the name, I can always do a rebrand. But yeah, that with the eggplant emoji as my Instagram <laughs> icon has really that's become my brand identifier. So I don't think yeah. I can get rid of it at this point. I completely feel that. And I mean, I feel like, honestly, it's very iconic. So I love it. I think you should just like <laughs> lean into it. And yeah, once you pick a name and you kind of like start putting it out there and you start creating branding around it, it's like, well, how do I backtrack now? And I think about the fact that like for my podcast, Interstates and Heartbreak is based on 808s and Heartbreak from Kanye's album. And I feel like in the last two weeks, that's become like extra problematic, but I'm like, well, I'm too far in. So it's just staying. <laughs> you have to create your own meaning beside, you know, aside <laughs> from the inspiration that you pulled it from. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a great question. Yes. <laughs> I just had to ask, had to ask. And yeah, I'd love to hear how you became inspired to enter the world of coaching in the first place and how maybe your work and your own personal experiences drove you to this. Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned a little earlier, when I was talking about the name, I was employed at a domestic violence agency in my county here in Vermont. And I was their education and prevention coordinator. So it was my job to speak publicly to the community and to healthcare practitioners and systems people and institutions about what domestic violence is and the signs of it and the red flags and supporting survivors. And another big part of my work was being a guest speaker in high school health classes. Wow. So I was the lady that would come in and talk to them about consent, about healthy relationships, about jealousy and red flags. And I really loved the conversations I was having with young people. And overall in that work, I really preferred to focus on the aspects of healthy relationships more than the abusive and power and control dynamics that I also was responsible for educating my community about. And being equipped with that knowledge, I started working there when I was 23. 
So to know all of the things to be looking out for and how to support people that are in abusive relationships and what makes a relationship successful and Mm -hmm. promotes longevity and healthy communication, being forced in a way to learn all about that so I can show up in the best way that I can for my job and for my community Mm -hmm. was really a massive reality check of how I'd been navigating my own dating experience up until that moment. Mm -hmm. So it was there in that work that I realized that there is just something so magical and captivating about understanding what makes a relationship successful that I really wanted to dive into. So I slowly became that person that all of my friends were coming to for dating advice or helping them write a message or helping them create their dating app profile. Mm -hmm. And it was really amazing how that just organically started forming. And all of them were so unanimously supportive of Marla, you need to go out into the world and do this. You need to share this with other people. Other people should be able to talk to you and work with you. Like you've been so generous to give us as your friends, your time. And Mm -hmm. so then that's when the idea of creating a business started coming up. And this was right Mm -hmm. before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened and I had nothing but time. So I said, what is a better way to spend these next however long weeks or months (laughs) we're going to (laughs) be years in this situation? Then to do some serious self-development work and show up for my community and allow the wild west of the internet to be able to have access to me as a person and as a coach. Yeah, Yeah. I love that so much. And I didn't actually realize that it started with these discussions with high schoolers. And I would love to hear about what that was like as a former high school teacher Sometimes I get a little bit of PTSD about what kids can be like when they don't have that relationship with you yet. So did you get pushback? Was it hard to get them to open up about something that's so personal? So there is a lot of different layers to my approach of how I was able to build trust and rapport with the high school students. I think that being, for lack of a better word, being really nonchalant when talking about certain topics, like In particular, in my consent presentation, I'm up there and I'm talking about sexting to a room of 15 year olds without (laughs) even like blinking an eye. I'm talking to them about, you know, the different forms of sex while I, you know, it's casual as if I'm talking about the weather. So I think like the fact that I was very casual about it made them feel more comfortable. And the fact that I was, that I not was, I still am a young person. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's different, you know, hearing it from me than hearing it from their health teacher that was some boomer that doesn't really know what's going on (laughs) in the modern world of dating or relationships. Yeah. So some conversations were definitely tricky to navigate. But overall, in the three years that I did that work, I got a really positive response from the students I was working with. And they would ask really great questions and I would give them honest answers. Yeah. And I think that's really what they want when they're going to older folks or adults about 
these really vulnerable and intimate topics. They just want an honest answer. Yeah, that is really huge. And I think the fact that you were able to establish trust with them, one of the hardest demographics to establish trust with, arguably the hardest, is really a testament to how amazing of a coach you are and like how open your clients probably feel with you as you're working with them today. So that's really great. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, I think that my experience with high schoolers, as well as with adults that in many times, if I'm presenting to a hospital, a lot of the staff was a lot older than me. So there Mm -hmm. was many conversations where I was the youngest one in the room, but I'm delivering this information that they're all hearing for the first time about what relationships should or should not look like. Yeah. So I guess I would love to hear as you have worked to build your business, have you kind of looked Mm -hmm. to see like, okay, what else is out there? Like, what are other dating coaches doing? And if so, how do you feel like your services or just your coaching style differ from what else you've seen? This is an interesting question because I was on the phone with a friend of mine who's in the coaching world yesterday. Hmm. We were talking about differentiating ourselves in the coaching space. and. Although this is not the greatest answer, I think that really just being in the G-Spot Instagram community speaks for itself. (laughs) I don't have a personal Instagram account. I actually had no social media since 11th grade. Wow. And getting on this, making an Instagram for this coaching business is the only form of social media I've ever had as an adult. Wow. So... My page is a hybrid of my own life and my own quirks and my Mm -hmm. own humor and life experience combined with my coaching work and the education work that I do through having the Instagram platform. So a way that I am differentiated is definitely the content that I'll post on my stories and as it relates to my own life. I mean, I post my own Bumble conversation screenshots on my stories and I give... I live for those. (laughs) Thank you. I give a little analysis about here's what's going on on Bumble. Oh, this was a red flag. I didn't like Mm -hmm. what this person said. So I really don't mind sharing my own personal experience with those that keep up with me on the platform. Because I think that's really how we learn is by watching how other people that might have more knowledge about a certain subject, how they do certain things. Yeah. So I guess who I am as Marla is what differentiates me from the rest of the coaches out there. I love that. I feel like people really respect and appreciate that level of transparency And it really is the best way to showcase your personality. Like I started following you recently, of course, and I'll read through these Bumble conversations and I'm like, Marla is like a flirt. She is sassy. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I I bring (laughs) sass. I bring class. (laughs) (laughs) She has it all. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I really love sharing conversations with the community because Nobody else that I know or that I follow is really doing that. They're not posting screenshots about their own conversations that they're having on dating apps. True. Yeah. And I'm ready to embrace the cringe and own it. I am shamelessly embracing the cringe with my own dating life and really showcasing that through my coaching work too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the real shit, you know, obviously, you know, it's like, 
dating is cringy, unfortunately. So I feel like pretending that your own dating life isn't cringy, that's not helpful because you have to kind of acknowledge the fact that it's like, yeah, I'm going through it too. And I can't make your dating life totally uncringy, but I can help you work through it. Yes. Yes. You can have somebody who is aggressively supporting you behind you. And you know that's really the point of coaching. We're not there to tell anybody what to do. We're just there to ask the right questions and to really provide unconditional support. Yeah. So I know one of your focus areas is really helping your clients date with purpose and intention. And I'd love to hear more about how you define that. And also how purposeful dating differs from mindful dating. Because I know you said that that's a key point of differentiation that you've identified. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, great question, Leslie. So let's see. A lot of my work revolves around helping my clients figure out what it is that they are looking for. So what is not negotiable for you? What are the standards that you have from past relationships, things that you don't want to repeat? And what are the boundaries that you're walking into this with? What do you need to feel safe and secure as well as what do you expect from your partner in that regard too? So a lot of what I learned when I was working at that domestic violence agency is that once emotional investment begins to form with a partner, it's a lot easier to overlook the red flags or things that necessarily aren't a good fit for you because you're starting to fall into that place of having feelings for them. It's a lot harder to walk away from somebody that's not right for you once an emotional connection is there. So what I help my clients do is before they even meet somebody, before they even have that opportunity for that emotional investment to begin, I guess, tainting their view of this person, going from an objective view to someone that they have feelings for, If we are able to figure out what they're looking for and the type of people that they want to be with before that happens, they then have a blueprint or a vetting strategy that they are able to draw from when they do meet somebody that they feel like they want to get to know more. They're able to take whatever information that they have on this list and see where the person that they're into falls in alignment or disalignment with what they already figured that they wanted before they met this person. Mm -hmm. And although coming up with these lists and really putting thought into this isn't the end all be all, of course, there's a level of flexibility. But if one of your non-negotiables is that you have to date somebody that enjoys doing things outdoors, If you were to meet somebody that does not like to do any outdoor activities, you would automatically know, okay, before even feelings start being formed for this person, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not going to be a good fit. I should invest my energy elsewhere. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think it's a great thing to call out because it is really easy to get sucked in and put those priorities to the wayside once you've already started to like them. And so, I guess one question I have is how do you advise your clients to get ahead of that? And I guess what I mean is like, are there questions that you advise asking or like certain ways that you advise bringing up these topics without it coming across as like, okay, like I'm going through this checklist, like Katherine Heigl in like a rom-com, like where she's super uptight and like driving guys away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It has to of course feel organic, but 
really the first few dates that you go on with somebody, they're not really dates in the sense of more that they're just meets. You are meeting this person. You're not really Mm -hmm. starting to date the first time you meet somebody. So I think that there has to be this level of, okay, I'm just going to go and be present and pay attention to how I feel and what I observe. And then as I begin to get to know this person more, then that's, you know, I don't need to be matching them up in my head in that moment, but just remembering what they told me about the ways that they like spend their time. Did they talk about their past relationships and how they ended? Did I like how that person spoke about their ex? So there's different things to keep in mind, but I don't want the people I work with to be going through a mental checklist. I think that's where I come in is with the processing of what happened on the date. A lot of what I'll do is debrief dates with my clients. So then instead of them in the chair at the dinner table thinking about, oh, they said that they don't like to play instruments and music is important to me. This date is over. Instead, they come to me after and we talk about it and we talk about what's flexible and what's not. Yeah. I love that because then you can kind of be present rather than analyzing during the date and getting really in your head when you're supposed to be enjoying yourself with that other person. That's great. Yeah. Even if you don't think that somebody is a good fit for a partner for you, you could still have a nice night with them. It just all depends on the type of pressure that you're showing up with to that date or if they're putting a lot of pressure on it. That's when things start getting uncomfortable and the stakes get higher. Yeah. How do you help your clients avoid over-romanticizing things? Because I feel like that's something that's really easy to do just based on how we're conditioned for a ton of reasons. And especially maybe if it's someone who Mm -hmm. either they have great banter with upfront on the app, or maybe they met in person and they have this great meet cute. Do you find that for those clients, it's harder for them to look at things objectively? Yeah. And I would consider myself one of those people that really struggles with over romanticizing. I don't know if you're familiar with the term limerence. I'm not actually. Okay. So limerence is this feeling of almost near obsession with a person where you are completely seeing past all of their flaws, putting them on this pedestal above everybody else. You don't even know how strong your feelings actually are for the person because you're so wrapped up in the fantasy of who you think that they are, that you then begin projecting that onto them. And So limerence is something that's really, really common. And I think a lot of us experience it, but we don't really have the word for it. So that's what the word for it is. Yeah. And a way that I have found to be really helpful to curb those feelings of limerence is just going really slow. Because in my own experience, things that start quickly are usually going to end quickly. And any type of sturdy foundation with a person, especially somebody that you're in, a romantic and intimate relationship with, you have to have a really strong, solid foundation that isn't based on projections and fantasies. So although you can't, sometimes it can be really hard to stop those over-romanticizing thoughts from happening, I would focus more on how you act on those thoughts. You can keep them in your head and still act really slow and still act in a way that's very slow and intentional with a person. 
But once you let that over romanticization take the driver's seat, you no longer have like rational control of your feelings. You are being led. It's, I don't even know if you're being led with your heart. I don't know what's leading you (laughs) at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's just kind of off the rails at that point, but it's so hard. And I just had a conversation with a girlfriend recently and she has met this guy and it seems like they're a great match. And I I could see her working through this to make sure that she's not getting ahead of herself because it's like, obviously she's very excited for good reason. And they've only hung out three times though. So she kept being like, yeah, like he's so great because of this and this and this, but I'm realizing I'm still getting to know him. So I was very proud of her to just see how cognizant she was of it, but without letting it kind of make her cynical or dampen the overall excitement. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk that I've seen in the Instagram space that the first three to six months of a relationship don't even count. Some people don't even count that as like real time that you are with that person because you are still using those rose tinted glasses and you are still getting to know each other with that honeymoon phase. So it's interesting of, you know, what is the first three to six months of your relationship look like versus the rest of it that follows? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, truly a question that every person who met their significant other on a dating show has to really dive into. I know. I know. Especially I think if my heart goes out to the folks on Love is Blind. Oh my God. Yeah. That in itself could be a whole other podcast episode because, (laughs) oh my gosh, talk about different phases of your relationship. (laughs) Oh, so many. I just binged the whole thing in like less than 24 hours. Like you said, Leslie, that's a whole other podcast episode. Yes. (laughs) We could dive into quite a bit there. So I guess, you know, as you're working with your clients and you're saying, okay, let's go over what traits you want to prioritize. Do you find that sometimes people have to be coached through what's actually important to prioritize versus what might be more superficial or might be a nice to have, but not necessarily that foundational to a strong connection? Yeah. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll part of the work that we do in the first session that I would have with somebody is figuring out what it is that they want. Unfiltered. This is a space where you can announce anything into it. What is it that you want? What are the types of things that you're looking for? What are your priorities? What do you never want to repeat things that happened in your past? How are we, you know, what is the absolute no situations that you'd put yourself in? And then from there, I do that on a Google Doc that we both have access to. So I'm able to add to it as they're talking to me. And then they're also able to see what I'm adding and add their own things into it. Love that. And the non-negotiables, that document is a living, breathing document because it is always changing. And there's always opportunities to shift the lens that you're bringing into the dating world for who you're interested in and who you'd like to stay away from. But what's important is that they're able to get all of their thoughts down and on paper or on the computer and they can look at them. And then through that, I will assign, you know, I give my clients homework because the coaching process is really self-guided. So I will have them go through that list and figure out or bold or italicize all of the things that they absolutely will not do without. 
And then from there, we're able Mm -hmm. to figure out what is a preference versus what is something that you absolutely have no flexibility on and it won't work. Yeah. One of my clients right now, country music is her non-negotiable. Really? If somebody, if they don't like country music, she can't date them. Wow. And even though that's not my non-negotiable, yeah. that is such a core important value to her is that when they are in the car together on a road trip, going somewhere, if either of them gets the aux cord, country music is going to be what they put on. I never would have thought of that as a non-negotiable for me, but that is really cool that she has that like no, this is a definitive thing and I'm standing by it. Yes. And she, you know, I'm helping her on the apps right now. And there's like, I could remember at least three people so far that she's connected with that she found out that they don't like country music and she didn't unmatch. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) I know, I know. Like not saying that she should, obviously not saying she should give it up, but it's like, what a bummer to be like, okay, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then to get to the country music thing and be like, it's not the one. (laughs) No, no. And I feel that. And in many ways I'm like, oh, you know, this is, that's going to shrink your dating pool, but that's a good thing. We want a small dating pool because if we are open to dating anybody, then truly anybody is going to try to date us. And it is up to us and our vetting process and the lists that we create to help us narrow that down. So we date people who are right for us. You are so right. And the whole thing about online dating is that we have this paradox of choice. It makes people feel a little disposable and it's Mm -hmm. so exhausting. I just feel like I wasn't really as discerning when I started online dating because I put on these rose-colored glasses of saying, and not everyone is good at presenting themselves on the apps. So who am I to say that just because their profile is kind of like meh, that they won't be amazing in person. And that's a nice, very optimistic, very naive like mindset to have. But in reality, Mm -hmm. it's like no one has, you don't have time to just give every average profile your time and energy. So I love that you said we should have fewer options to make it a better, more efficient dating process. Yes, I am all about dating efficiently because it is really overwhelming and we do get burnt out and we do get easily discouraged. And even Mm -hmm. just by having like one or two hard limit non-negotiables, like this country music situation, that is going to weed out so many people that aren't a good fit for her. And that's what I want. I want her dating pool to be a smaller pool with people that are better aligned with what she's looking for. Yes, I love that. And another thing which we mentioned up top was the fact that you really do focus on, okay, in addition to finding someone who's compatible with you, who meets these criteria, they also have to be emotionally available. And I feel Mm -hmm. like it's maybe difficult for some people to kind of off the cuff think of, telltale signs that someone is emotionally available or unavailable, aside from like the very obvious red flags of like on Bumble, if they say, what are you looking for? And their answer is not sure. Or if they have like here for a good time, not a long time. Okay. They're probably not emotionally (laughs) available, but what are some of the less obvious flags that people should be looking out for? If somebody physically does not have time for you in their schedule, if they are 
taking care of their family and they have a full-time job and they're doing some side hustle stuff and they have a really bustling social life, where are you going to fit into that? Are you able to see them at the same rate every week or month that they want are able to see you? Is this person consistent and reliable? When you make plans, do they show up? Even after you're dating, are they still in communication with you about timing and initiating things? Are you the only person that is putting an effort to see them? If you weren't asking for plans, would you just never hang out with them? Are they able to share their own boundaries with you and you feel good and safe and comfortable sharing yours with them? Have they put thought into the types of things that they don't want and the types of things that they do want? Or are they just floating around the dating world saying, I'm just here to see what's out there? <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I know. Because anything is out there. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be some type of narrowing down strategy. Does this person know how to communicate well? When you bring up something that bothered you or something you'd like to check in on, do they get defensive? Do they deflect? Do they gaslight you? Do they make you doubt that the feelings that you were having were actually as intense or as bad as they were? Are they trying to make light of what they did to hurt you? Are they receptive to acknowledging that they caused harm and committed to repairing that in your relationship? Does this person initiate check-ins on their own or do they wait for you to be the one to bring something up and then that's when they start dumping all these things they've been holding in for the past few months onto you when you were the one that initiated something about a small thing that they did earlier that day? Do they have a self-development practice? So I know therapy is not accessible to everyone. But is this person consciously like thinking about how do I be a better person than I was yesterday? Do they have compassion for themselves? Do they have a practice where they're able to forgive themselves and forgive others? And they're able to see the best intentions in other people. Mm -hmm. Are they a positive person? That's huge. Yeah. 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 There's so many signs that go into being emotionally available. And it's usually, I feel like it's, it could be tough to gauge at the beginning, but when you hear about a person's day-to-day routine and how they spend their free time and how they act when they're around their friends and how they talk about their last relationships, especially how they talk about past partners, that's a really big indicator of emotional availability. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like a lot of times I think people will, might think, oh, it's a compliment that I'm saying my ex was like this, but you're not like that. And that's what I like about you. Whereas that is toxic in a way where it's like, you don't need to put someone down to compliment the person you're with, first of all. But also it kind of just shows that they're still harping on the negatives of that relationship. So that is definitely a red flag that I think can often manifest itself pretty early on. Yeah, we've all heard stories about people who have gone on first dates and their date did not stop talking about their last relationship. It's so cringe. It's so uncomfortable. So cringe. It's really crazy to me that people are still doing that. You know, I feel like that's one of the established, agreed upon dating rules that's been in place for years now. So 
if someone mm-hmm. is still doing it, even though it's like, oh, this is frowned upon, like on a societal basis, then that's just a sign that they're clearly like they can't even help themselves. Yeah, that tells me that, okay, there's a self-development practice that this person's missing. You Because know, if they were mm-hmm. doing that work, it's very unlikely that this whole dinner would have been dedicated to why they don't like their past partners. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so I guess, like you said, it's so hard to suss these things out in the beginning. But are there any things where maybe like there's a tonality that you can get from like a dating app prompt or a communication style over the apps that might help someone like at least flag it, if not weed them out entirely before kind of investing more time in meeting up with this person? Yeah, I do think that we shouldn't be too quick to judge people on their dating apps, like you said, but there are some really clear Mm -hmm. red flags that things are just off about a person. Yeah. You know, really, if their pictures are really bad, or maybe if they only have photos that are them in a group or really far away from their face, like anything where you can't see who they are, I would be a little bit weary to meet up with somebody whose photos are a bit sketchy. Yeah. If their bio is just a couple of emojis or (laughs) hashtags or a witty one-liner, like you said earlier, not here for a long time, here for a good time. (laughs) Yeah. Run. If I see any type of negativity in a profile, like if you're going to message me, you better plan on answering. Yes. I'm like, whoa, this is the energy you're bringing off the bat. It's so aggressive. (laughs) And like, I'm also like, who hurt you? So aggressive. Like, I know, I know. And I don't want to bypass that hurt. Yeah. But in all honesty, your dating app profile has to be friendly, personable, approachable, and positive. Yeah. If it's not any of those things, if it's negative, if there's any signs that you are like still not over your past partner, or if you're like coming off the bat saying that you've been through a lot of shit. <laughs> people really aren't going to be inclined to opt into that and swipe on you. No. Like by not knowing you, like those things that you're struggling with are not problems that somebody who doesn't know you is going to want to pick. And dating strategically is all about picking the problems that you want. Because nobody in a relationship is problem-free. But once you're able to get to know somebody and the quote unquote problems that they have, you're able to choose if that is a problem that you want to opt into. Yeah. And if you don't want to opt into that, then you know that that person's not a good fit. Agreed. And it's like, once you are committed to someone, it's not to say like, oh, keep those problems away from me, but it's more just like, okay, well, I need to know that this person is bringing something to the table and that they're going to be a good partner in other ways. And then I can commit to being invested in helping them on their self-growth journey and listening to them and helping them heal. But who needs to take that on for someone who like might not bring anything to the table whatsoever? That's insane. Yes. I love what you just said, Leslie. It's, you, know, you then decide if that's what you want to invest in. And if you're putting that energy out on your dating app profile with nobody even having that emotional connection with you on there, I steer clear of those profiles. I don't care how hot the pics are. I'm not swiping. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I feel like oftentimes like there's this toxic mindset, which can be exemplified by females. Cause it's, I see it manifest through this like Marilyn Monroe quote, whether or not she actually said it or not, who knows, but where it's like the gist of it being, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. And it's like, that isn't a permission slip to just act badly as a test to see if then like they deserve to be around you when you're in a good mood. Like, but I feel like some people really take it that way. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the quote you said, <laughs> Leslie. When, right when you said this Marilyn Monroe quote, I, yeah. I braced myself and I said, okay, this is going to be a can't handle me at my worst moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just so wild. Yes. And I used to subscribe to that in high school and in college. I used to believe that like, all right, if they can't handle me at my saddest self sabotaging worse than they don't deserve me when I'm glowing up. And that's not true at all. Everybody's capacity is so different and we should never make it the obligation of the person that we are dating to have to hold space for us when we are really at our worst. That can be really hard for a lot of people to witness and to support Mm -hmm. us through. And I would rather have a partner that is able to say, you know, this feels a little bit out of what I'm able to support you through. Can I help you find anyone else that's able to hold space for you? And I'd rather have that than somebody pretend that they're able to handle it and then let me down and make me feel worse. That is very true. Yeah. And it's like, we want someone who has boundaries and we don't need Mm -hmm. a partner who's going to be a martyr and then totally deplete their own emotional capacity because they're trying to save you. So yes, yes. There's a really great quote that I saw on a wall. I forgot where I was, but it was something like, you shouldn't have to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. So I guess as you are helping clients to figure out, okay, is this person who I'm trying to date emotionally available? Do you ever find that maybe clients already have to address their own emotional availability or unavailability first? Yeah. And I have no problem making requests or suggestions that like a therapy and coaching route would be a very like good fit. They're a match made in heaven when you have support from a therapist mm-hmm. and from a coach. I have told clients that I don't think I'm a good fit to take them on because some of the things that they'll come to me with in our consult call, I really feel a therapist is more qualified to help them with. So Mm -hmm. as a coach, I'm really not here to dive into somebody's past. I'm there to understand how their past is influencing the present and the goals that they set for themselves in the present. But when it comes to like having to do deep healing stuff, I'm really not qualified or trained to ethically provide a deep healing pathway for somebody. Yeah. You know, I love that. And the fact that you're just transparent and you're like, this is above my pay grade, but you should see (laughs) someone else who's like focused on this. I think that just, again, goes to the fact that you are very self-aware and like transparent about what you have to offer and like how you can help individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's tricky because it can be hard to find a therapist that you really connect with. And maybe somebody has been following me on Instagram for a while and feels that they really do connect with me. But like you said, Leslie, once you get to that place where 
it's above and beyond what you're ethically even able to provide as a service provider, that's when I'll make a referral out. Or that's when like I can provide them with resources. Like these are some books I've read that have helped with this topic, but it's a boundary within myself to work with folks that I feel like I am able to support and that are in a headspace to be able to receive coaching support. If there's so much deep healing work that has to be done, the coaching would really kind of just be putting a band-aid on like a gaping wound. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like really the inner work, inner healing has to be going on in order to begin like for someone to want to work with me that has to already be in process. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's where I come in to supplement. Yeah. Because otherwise you're kind of wasting both of your time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if I'm being paid by a person, I don't want their time to be wasted. I really want them to feel like for the time that we have together, they are the number one priority and I am here for them. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I wanted to transition to was attachment styles, because I feel like that is kind of hand in hand with emotional availability. Mm -hmm. And I would love to have just a brief explanation from your perspective of what attachment styles are for any listeners who aren't familiar. And then we can kind of dive into how they align with being emotionally available or unavailable. Yeah. Yeah. I really love pulling from attachment theory with the work that I do with my clients. So they're Attachment theory comes from, I think it's between the 50s and the 70s in psychological theory. There's a scientist named Mary Ainsworth, and she did this experiment called the strange experiment or the strange study, I think. And it looked at how infants respond to their primary caregiver when they're in a situation that causes stress for the infant. So they discovered that there was four different types of responses when a child and their caregiver were reunited after the stressful incident was happening, the stressful incident was the parent left the room and the child realized that the parent was gone. And how did the child react when they were reunited with their parent? And there was four different types of styles. The first one was secure. So the child would hug their parent and receive the, I guess, the love and the affection from them and then go back to playing in the room nicely. There was the avoidant one where when they were reunited with their parent, they were very standoffish and didn't want to connect with their parent. They kind of avoided the feelings of intimacy that came with that reunification. There was the anxious style where this, the child would be really clingy and really like not wanting to leave their parent again, really like looking for them and making sure that they're in the room. And then there is a combination of the anxious and the avoidant type, which is called disorganized, where the kid, the child would want to be close to the parent, but would also be kind of standoffish and avoidant, kind of like a, I hate you, please love me type of energy. Yeah. So a hybrid of the two. And so scientists have then taken that framework from the strange situation experiment from the 70s and have applied it to how adults connect with their primary partners in relationships. So all four of those attachment styles, for people who believe or subscribe to attachment theory, believe that there are very specific behaviors and traits and characteristics of each of those styles in the way that we love our partners. So 
I personally, I've taken a quiz. I'm mostly secure, but I have anxious components to myself as well. And a very common trap or situation that anxious folks will find themselves in is going for somebody who is avoidant. Hmm. The anxious and avoidant trap is huge. It's the pursuer and the distancer. Right when you start getting close to someone, that's when they begin pulling away. And historically, so many of my own partners, my last relationship especially, he was avoidant and I was anxious. And even though I only had a sliver of anxiety in that chart that I took from the quiz, Mm -hmm. My anxiety would get so blown out of proportion whenever he would start acting in the characteristically avoidant way. That is so fascinating. And I love hearing that whole explanation because I think it's really important to know that it's something that is kind of ingrained in you from your early formative years, which is wild, first of all. But then Mm -hmm. to hear you say, oh, but I actually had this experience where I became more anxious in response to the avoidance of this other partner, I think is also huge. Because I feel like I've had that experience as well, where Mm -hmm. I haven't taken the quiz recently. I need to take it again to see where I fall. But I think, you know, I'm mostly secure, I would say overall. And I had one relationship where I was secure maybe even like a little bit avoidant, I think, to this one person, because I was like, I don't know that they're the right fit. And so it caused me to act in an avoidant way. But then in my next relationship, I became totally anxious, like I would say objectively anxious, because my partner was very avoidant. And I just felt like I needed to get this validation and always felt like the relationship was in jeopardy. And so it's really interesting to know that It's kind of like a nature and nurture kind of thing where you can be one way, but someone can bring out an entirely different side of your attachment. Yes. And it changes over time, Leslie, which is what the really cool thing about it is that in our lifetimes with intentional reflection and therapy and just self-development work, we can all make our attachment style shift to be more secure. There are always more steps that somebody can take to make their relationships more secure. And that feels really good to know that that even though by age five, our like primary attachment style is solidified. It happens really young. So even though this thing, you know, is something that most of us carry so long without even thinking about into our adult lives until we start doing some type of reflection work it's able to be changed and it's able to be shifted. And there are steps that all of us can take to be more secure. Very encouraging to know we're not doomed. (laughs) It's not like, you know, like we're stuck in this pattern forever. So that is great news. Yeah, there is hope. And this last relationship that I have really highlighted all of the the things that I noticed but overlooked or gave my past partner the benefit of the doubt on in terms of his avoidant behaviors. And I can say with confidence that I will likely, if everything goes according to plan, not date somebody who mirrors any of that. If I see any type of resemblance of that, I know what it does to me and the little anxious 12 year old it turns me into when that starts happening. So I can now start dating from a more secure perspective because I know what avoidance looks like in my own relationships now. Yeah. 
So from that experience, I guess, what were some of the things that helped you realize that this partner was avoidant? Like, how did that manifest itself in your relationship? (laughs) I'm laughing because in hindsight, I'm like, oh, geez, it's so... It was all so obvious and just the ways that we we would go about being in space and in communication with each other. So avoidance need a lot of time to themselves to decompress. And they also really, really value their independence. They equate their independence with strength. And they believe that vulnerability and being needy or clingy is really large signs of weakness. And they actually pride themselves on how self-sufficient and independent that they are. So the amount of space that this person would need would differ from me. I definitely have fallen into that pattern in many of my relationships of wanting to see my partner every day. And now when all is said and done after this past relationship, I know that that's impractical and that doesn't work with my schedule. But needing a lot of space If something really emotional or intimate was happening, they might be prone to shutting down because feelings and emotions can be scary for them. For people who are avoidant, it's likely that they were raised to think that the way that they feel doesn't necessarily matter. So, and many times they might not be able to even identify how they're feeling because that experience of diving into their emotions and expressing them as a child was always met negatively. It wasn't positively reinforced. So talking about feelings can be really triggering to avoidant folks. Losing their independence is one of their biggest fears. And I think another thing that's important to note is that like vulnerability is really hard too for people who are avoidant. Because to be vulnerable, that means you have to be able to share feelings and sharing feelings isn't easy for them. And So I must have been in many ways, this person's worst nightmare because I can't stop talking about my feelings. I I am a a feeling sharing queen and (laughs) I always want to have conversations and I always want to get closer and build more intimacy with the people that I'm with. And it was really hard to realize after like the initial honeymoon phase that the relationship has shifted and he needed a lot more space than he did at the beginning of the relationship. And like not taking that personally was really hard, especially because it was only as a result of this relationship that I began to dive into attachment theory in adulthood. I wasn't thinking about this before then. I just thought that they were losing interest and it was my fault. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's so tough. Yeah. It takes a lot of work and reflection to not put it on yourself. But yeah, I think once you kind of realize like, no, this is actually something that is more ingrained in who this person is, and it's going to be difficult for one relationship to undo all of that, then it's easier to kind of come to terms with it. That's so important, Leslie, like realizing that this is who this person is. And for so long, I didn't realize that because the beginning of our relationship looked very different than the many months that followed. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, it was really hard not taking it personally, like you said. When, but once I realized that this is who they are, at that point, it was already too late. Like my brain and my heart had already been through just so much hurt by the avoidance that, like, repairing it in a timely manner with somebody who wasn't in the same boat 
of self-development in terms of relationship behavior and etiquette that I was, like it was already too late. Yeah. Wow. So would you say that the avoidance itself was an eventual deal breaker or just kind of like led to whatever the eventual deal breaker was? Yeah, I think that the avoidance itself is the deal breaker because I am always seeking closeness with my partners. And for like my seeking of closeness to trigger the person that I'm dating, that's not sustainable. No. Yeah, that's not sustainable at all. I'm not dating the right person. So I do think that for myself, with having that little anxious sliver in my chart, that makes me a bad fit for people who are avoidant. Um, Avoidance do best with secure partners because secure partners are able to see and understand that the avoidance needs space and they're not threatened by any of that. And also the avoidance see that the secure person understands who they are doesn't try to change them or make them more uncomfortable. And often avoidance will take Mm -hmm. some pages out of the secure's book and start acting more secure when they date a secure person. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I kind of often think like, are we just like doomed though for anxious people and avoidant people to always end up together? Because I feel like the secure people are going to be like, no, fuck that. I just want to date another secure person. Like I don't want to deal. <laughs> so at any given moment, statistically speaking, the dating pool is mostly filled with avoidant people. And this is for a couple of reasons. Avoidance don't really last too long in relationships, right? When intimacy and things start getting more serious, that is when the avoidance will surface. And folks that are secure, like they'll decide if that's a problem that they want to pick. And avoidance don't usually date avoidance because they lack the glue of intimacy that would even keep them together. (laughs) Yeah. So at any given moment, the dating pool is mostly avoidance because secure and anxious folks are together. Secures and secures are together. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you'll have that secure, anxious duo, but that will usually end. That won't last forever in many ways. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's another lens that's important to keep in mind on the dating pool when you're on the apps and when you're meeting people is just knowing, okay, statistically speaking, most people on this app right now are probably avoidant. Yeah, that is crazy. It's like a landmine, (laughs) just like emotional unavailability. (laughs) I know it's it's such a landmine. (laughs) Everything that I said today, it came from this book called Attached which is uh, by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. So I'll just name drop that. That book was really, really awesome in breaking down all of the different styles and how they show up in dating each other. And they spend a, a specific focus on the anxious and avoidant trap that so many of us find ourselves in. Yeah, that is, I think, a really great book for people to read. And I say that hypocritically because I haven't read it yet. But I feel like I've listened to so much about (laughs) attachment theory. I know that I need to just like dive in and like supplement all of the podcasts with Mm -hmm. the source material. So glad that you dropped that Mm because I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Really awesome book. So, okay. Wanted to kind of wrap up with a game and I've never done this before, but I had a game in mind and I'm like, no, I have a new game that I'm going to play. So we're going to pivot in real time. And While I'm pulling something up, I'll explain. So basically, as we were thinking of like different attachment styles and we mentioned love is blind, I think that there's a lot to be maybe potentially diagnosed there. So I wanted to get your thoughts on Mm -hmm. what attachment style all of the love is blind season two cast members have. 
because <laughs> I feel like some of them are like, wow, there's a lot that you could work on here. Yes. Okay. Okay. And that's great because I just caught up on all of the released episodes last night. So this is so fresh. Perfect. Yes. Yes. Okay. I love it. I was like binging it last weekend. It's so good. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's start with Shake. What do you think his attachment style is? I feel like Deep T brought out some emotional vulnerability within him and Deep T is really yeah. secure. So I feel like Shake is definitely on the more avoidant side of things. I completely agree. And really like using vanity metrics as a measure for a partner. What avoidance will do a lot of the time is they will set really unrealistic standards that nobody can meet to justify the fact that nobody's good enough to date mm. them. So they just don't date other people. Wow. And shake standards are really high dating, you know, only like thin blonde girls that he could put on his shoulders at EDM festivals. Yes, that he can pick up. <laughs> so I, I think shake has some avoidance in there. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay. What do you think about Danielle? Danielle. And I can remind you who they are because I'm literally looking oh. at their pictures because I was like, I don't remember all their names. Oh, I, I know everyone on there. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. You're like, I'm good. Oh, yeah. oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm good. Okay, Danielle, she is definitely anxious attachment, especially like because she goes into a lot of the like how she struggled with insecurity and never feeling good enough for other guys that she was dating with her big weight loss journey. Yeah. So I would say that Danielle definitely falls more on the anxious spectrum. I agree. It's sad to watch honestly. Mm -hmm. so hopefully she oh, can work through that, that. That relationship is a train wreck. Oh, I know. I'm like, at first I was like, oh, great. Okay. Like they're all in, this is wonderful. But then it's a lot of self-sabotage going on, unfortunately. A lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. What about Ayana? Ayana? Ooh, I definitely feel like she might be a combination of anxious and avoidant, but she mm -hmm. comes off as very secure too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, just, she's a very, I don't know, her presence is very grounding. Mm -hmm. I do think that there might be some hints of both in there, but I don't blame her for feeling any type of anxiety because not at you all. Know, the whole situation with Mallory and Jared, yeah. that would cause anybody to feel anxiety. Even the most secure person, like you would yes. feel some sort of anxiety around that whole situation. So that's a perfect transition. What do you think about Jared's attachment style? Mm. I feel like Jared might be a secure avoidant. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because they were having some really good in-depth conversations. There was a lot of vulnerability that I saw on his end yeah. of the pods. But just yeah. the way that he responds when Ayana brings up the Mallory stuff, you could see that he kind of shuts down and avoids. Like he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to take that on. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. It's kind of like secure until he is faced with this like issue that he like really should be able to explain because it's like a very valid concern for anyone to have. Yes. Yes. What about Kyle? Kyle. I feel like Kyle is really, I feel like he's secure. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like he's secure. This, this situation of like the, the chasing after Shayna and avoidant would not do that. That's definitely yeah. like more of an anxious person, you know, 
being willing to compromise his atheist faith to date somebody who is deeply Christian, Mm -hmm. that sounds like something an anxious person would do. Yeah. Like that's not a secure aspect of him. It's not. It's definitely not. And I feel like he kind of what you were saying earlier, he's like putting her on a pedestal. So he's like, well, I'm willing to sacrifice everything that's been important to me for my entire life. And the fact that this person is gaslighting me just because I feel like there's such a catch and I would be lucky to be with them. Exactly. Yes. Being in his presence, like he's also like a very grounding presence, but there's something about Shayna that is just like really triggering this anxious, like this anxious chasing part of him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, perfect transition. What about Shayna? Shayna. Oh my God. Well, Shayna, I feel like has avoidance because she has already been engaged and she doesn't, she's Mm -hmm. been through some shit in her past with like having with having things escalate to marriage. So I feel like in this situation, Shayna is avoidant, especially because it's so obvious that she's not into Kyle. Yeah, it's so sad. I'm like, don't accept the proposal. Come on. And the fact that she wanted to sleep in separate beds in Mexico, something that avoidant people will do is they likely will want, if they live with a partner, they want their own space. They like, They might not want to sleep with you. They might not even want to cuddle after sex or anything. That could be too much closeness for them. Deal breaker for me. I, me too. I'm like, I, you know, I want to cuddle all day. Yeah. So I think that Shayna is definitely on the avoidant section. It's giving me like Jessica from season one vibes, like the sleeping in opposite rooms and like, you're really trying to like chase after somebody else. I'm just like, Did they write this character because they're like, wow, Jessica was great social media fodder. We need someone exactly like her. (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree. I completely agree. My gosh. Okay. What about Shane? Oh my God, Shane. He, (laughs) I have been on a whirlwind of (laughs) understanding who he is. I wanted to jump through the screen and punch him in the face when he gaslit Natalie about when oh my god when he thought that it was Shayna yes I was like wait also Natalie what are you doing like why are you gonna feel badly about this and then go back to this person like he showed his true colors so early on I know I know and so I feel like Shane is honestly a combination of anxious and avoidant I think he's a disorganized person that's the hybrid that track yes yes because like in many ways like you see him like want to you know he's like I want everything to work with Natalie. I want to build this life. Like he's able to go Mm -hmm. there and think about that. But right when the conflict arose, he immediately was deflecting, denying, gaslighting, everything. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really hard to watch. Yeah. Because I'm sure you'll ask me about Natalie in a moment, but. Oh, yes. Yes. And one last thing about Shane before we pivot to Natalie is like, he's clearly really insecure, which is interesting because he needs so like, or maybe it's not insecure, but like he clearly values words of affirmation so much, but like to the point where it's causing a lot of issues and he's like picking fights because Natalie isn't as like complimentary as he wants her to be. So I'm like, what is going on with that? Like, that's really interesting. But yes, would love to hear your thoughts on Natalie's attachment style. Well, when Natalie like met him and was calling him a piece of shit on their honeymoon, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I feel like that was intimacy avoidance. That was avoidance there because she might realize that Shane is just this like, really like, he's like a man child. Yeah. So I think that she was like beginning to realize that on their honeymoon and as a defense mechanism to try to separate herself from that, that's like where the name calling and like the being play mean to him was coming in. So I really initially thought that Natalie was like super secure, but there's just something about this partnership with Shane that makes me like fundamentally question what's going on there because Shane like really is a walking red flag in so many regards. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, you know, Natalie, I thought she was secure, but now I'm, I'm seeing some avoidance and I don't know what's going to happen with the two of them. Yeah. It's interesting. It actually reminds me of a couple who I know personally. Yeah. I don't want to say too much. I don't want like people to know who it is, but it's like, she will kind of like neg him in person and like in front of like other people. And Mm -hmm. I have a lot of thoughts about why that is, but it is just like Mm -hmm. such an odd relationship dynamic with someone who you're supposed to really care about. So yes, very odd. Yeah. Okay. So the last major character What do you think about Nick's attachment style? Oh my God. Nick is the king of deflection. Mm -hmm. He like hard conversations with him always escalate into blaming and like they escalate to blame and deflection and taking no responsibility. I think that Nick is extremely emotionally unavailable. I think that he is totally biting off more than he can chew with the level of support that Danielle needs to feel secure in a relationship. I don't think that he knows what he's signing up for. I think that he has a lot of things that he has not processed about his own past and his own relationships that haven't lasted. I remember when they visited his family, his siblings were saying how like you've dated people for six years and never wanted to marry them. How are you? You just met this person and you want to marry her. A fair question. <laughs> I think that Nick is totally a combination of anxious and avoidant. I think he's disorganized and his conflict resolution skills are abysmal. They're not there. <laughs> abysmal. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's true. Oh my God. Yeah. So I think long story short, I think Nick's disorganized. Long story short, I think all these couples are doomed and I hate to say it, but like, I don't know. These are not strong connections. We don't necessarily have the Cameron and Lauren that we did last season. No, we didn't. We were all rooting for it. I'm sure like we were hoping and Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want to put all my eggs into any of these one couples. (laughs) Like if I really did appreciate Shake and Deep D and like, you know, meeting each other's families. That was really sweet. Mm-hmm. I just worry that Shake's like obsession with looks and with vanity metrics, that's going to sabotage a relationship with one of the greatest characters on the show. Deep D is awesome. Literally. She's amazing. I want to be her friend. I want to be her friend. She is so sweet. She is so like kind. She, yeah. yeah. And he's like, yeah. she looks like my aunt. Are you kidding me? <sighs> yeah, that's so sad. So sad. It's like, why did you come on a show called Love is Blind? Honestly, if you are really like that focused on people's appearance. 
I know, I know. Well, maybe like that's why he needed it so badly, but it's not like that can change in a matter of a month. Like that's no. how he's lived his life. And like, don't drag someone else through that. I think that Vanessa and Nick Lachey, I don't think that they set these couples up or these people up for success. <laughs> I think that if they really were behind wanting these couples to be successful, they would have hired relationship experts on site to debrief and process the experiences that people are having in the pods with the participants, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're going in there with a list of questions that they'd want to know about this person before they get married. Like it shouldn't have been a surprise to Nick and Danielle that Danielle is a party animal that stands on tables and plays rock band every day. And Nick like makes his own toothpaste and is a neat freak. Uh, That should have been found out after an engagement. Uh, I know. Yeah, they're really not setting them up for success. They're setting them up to make good TV. Yeah, they need more wraparound relationship support. If they were really in this, like rooting for the couple's success, they would have people on site that are able to help these participants navigate and process what's going on. And they don't. I'd love to be that person. My gosh, Netflix, like you heard it here first, season three, we can turn this around. And so if any Netflix execs are listening, Marla, can you plug where people can find you? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at G-Spot Coaching. And my email address is Marla, M-A-R-L-A at gspotcoaching.com. Amazing. I hope that you get that Netflix offer very soon. Thank you. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Interstates and Heartbreak, all spelled out. My personal account is at Leslie Nope, L-E-S-L-I-E-G-N-O-P-E. Marla, thank you so much. This was so amazing, so insightful. And I'm so happy that I had this outlet to talk about Love is Blind. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate you and your work. And thank you. Oh, thank you. Let's be exclusive. Subscribe to Interstates and Heartbreak wherever you listen to podcasts for more firsthand stories about the unglamorous side of dating in Los Angeles. And while you're at it, you can write me a love letter with a rating and review on Apple. See you next Sunday.